Father, we give you thanks for this festival and the opportunity it provides for us to rejoice with one another and to hear from our missionary guests. The work you are doing through them is such an encouragement to us. Help us as we partner with them. We do ask you to bless Aaron and Rachel Halbert serving in Honduras and Anthony and, and Seo Atahan serving in Japan. Grant them wisdom and strength and provision and rest as they plant churches and share the gospel. Keep them and their children safe. Father, you call us out of the darkness and into the light, out of self-confidence and into Christ-confidence, out of selfishness and into humble servanthood, to the glory of your name and the coming of your kingdom. How richly you have blessed us. May your Holy Spirit kindle passion and discernment in how you are calling each of us to love our neighbor well. We give you thanks for how you have gifted Chris Wright and how he is faithfully stewarding those gifts. Bless us now with ears to hear and soft hearts to embrace what he has to teach us this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. I'm hoping that a screen will come down at some point because we've got a PowerPoint here. Will that happen in a moment, do you think? There we go. Oh, that's all right. Before you ask, they will answer. So there we go. That's great. Good. Thank you so much for your prayer and for your welcome today and for some wonderful meals. Uh, I was just saying to Robbie, you know, if I were to stay here any longer than this weekend, I think my wife would recognize me when I get back. So uh, it's... Uh, all this wonderful southern cooking, so I've been enjoying it very much. So here we go. Let me just get my notes out in front of me. And also great to uh, meet with, with some of the mission partners, uh, including our dear brothers who've just spoken, uh, and to hear with great encouragement what God is doing around the world uh, in so many places, including, of course, in my own city of London with the Surge Group and many others, of course, like that. But uh, as you'd have seen, I don't need that because so I, I got this. Uh, as you'd have seen on the program, our theme for this evening uh, is this one. I'll just move that slightly away from my arm there. If you were here this morning, you'll remember that we were looking at uh, the book of Genesis uh, and God's word there to himself in relation to Abraham and God's plan to bless the nations. Uh, and this evening we've moved to Exodus. Um, tomorrow evening we'll have got a little bit further, we'll get to First Kings, but uh, so far we're still in the Pentateuch. And there's our title, Saved to be God's Representatives Among All Nations. And the text that we're looking at is on page 8 of your brochure. I'm not going to read it right now because uh, I want to look mainly at the central verses of it, but it's good for you to have it there in front of your eyes when we get to it. But let me begin, as I did this morning, by asking a question to kind of help us to get thinking about these things. Uh, and here's the question. Who are we and what are we here for? And you may say, well, we're Christians and we're here because it's Sunday and we're in church. Well, I think it a little bit more profoundly than that. Who are we as the people of God? And what is the very purpose of our existence? Now, if you were to ask those questions at a personal level, who are you and what are you here for? The answer would depend really on what story you think you're living in. 
because we all live in some story or other, something that is bigger than ourselves. Uh, for several centuries now, the Western world has been living with the story of human progress. Uh, the great myth, the great story we tell ourselves that the world will get better and better so long as we all do our bit with a bit more science, technology, wealth, more stuff. We'll get better. We'll somehow make it. Uh, the myth of progress, sometimes in this country known as the American dream, but it's very much a story that people want to buy into uh, as we go along. The trouble is that for atheists, even that story has begun to become a bit thin because really, is there really any story? If the universe just goes from the big bang to the big crunch and we're somewhere in the middle of all that, is there any point, is there any meaning to human life? I don't know if you remember, but a few years ago uh, in London, my, well, actually, Sonny Saj, who I was talking to uh, over the evening meal, may well remember this, but a few years ago in London, the Humanist Society and Richard Dawkins and the, the Atheist Group decided to pay for an advert on the London buses, you know, the big, iconic red London buses. And so for several months, the buses in London went around with this message on the side, it said, there probably is no God, so stop worrying and enjoy life. That was the, uh, the, uh, the word that went around. It was actually a church in London which was uh, rather clever. Uh, it happened to be beside a bus stop uh, in the city, and so they put out a sign outside their church saying, there probably is no bus, uh, so step inside and enjoy God, which I thought was uh, a, a very good way of sort of reversing the point. But I remember when I saw that, there probably is no God, so just stop worrying and enjoy life. I, one of the things I thought to myself was, first of all, that's rather strange, because it suggests that all the people who believe in God are the people who are doing all the worrying, when in fact, most uh, surveys that have ever been done show that people of faith, of any faith indeed, people of faith are less stressed and worrying than those of not. But the other thing that I thought when I read it was, you know, there's, there's no... There's no story there. There's nothing, as it were, to live for or to die for. Just, there's no God, so just enjoy life. What, what's all that about? I mean, here's a story. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Now, that's a story. It's got a problem. It's got a solution. It's got a wonderful ending. But just, there's no God. Enjoy life. So that's the story that the world wants to tell. The question is, what story are you in? And indeed, what was this story in this passage that's there on page 8, Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 to 6? Because we could ask the same question about the people of Israel back in the Old Testament. Who were they and what are they there for? What were they doing in our Bibles? <laughs> what was God doing through these people of Israel? And in a sense, this passage, Exodus 19, 1-6, is where God himself gives the answer to that issue, to that question. This shows them that their story, that little part of the story there in Exodus, the story of them coming out of Egypt and coming to Mount Sinai, was simply one piece of a much bigger story, of God's big story, which is in fact the whole drama of Scripture, of the whole Bible. It's a story that spans the infinite past to the creation of the universe right through to the infinite future to the new creation. It's a story which binds together the past and the present and the future. 
And it's a story that we have in our Bible from creation to new creation that tells them who they were. In fact, it also told Jesus who he was because he took his identity also within that story. And it tells us who we are. So I want us to concentrate then for a few minutes on those verses there in Exodus chapter 19. And although it's there in your, uh, on your page, I'd like to sort of read the verses as they come up on the screen. It's a slightly different translation than what you have there, but it's particularly verses 4, 5, and 6 where God is actually speaking to the Israelites because here we have it. God says to them, And I'll just read what's on the screen. You yourselves, God says to the Israelites, you have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you in eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession for the whole earth is mine and you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's God's word to the Israelites at that moment. What's happening there is that God is doing three things within that passage. He's pointing back to explain the past. He's pointing forward to a vision of the future. And he's calling for a response in the present. And in all three of those areas, past, future, and present, it's all about God's grace, which I'm sure you'll be glad to hear as Presbyterians, that it's all about the grace of God in this passage. The word grace is not actually mentioned but trust me, it's there. Because the first thing that we need to see is that what we have here is God doing that. It's the past grace of God's salvation. Can you see what God says to the people first there in verse 4? God says, you have seen what I have done. And they had. Because as you can see at the top of the page there, it was just three months or possibly two. It depends how many new moons had gone past. The third new moon, is that the third month or the second month? At any rate, very recently, these people had been slaves in Egypt. They were being beaten and whipped and their children thrown in the Nile. They were being exploited cruelly, brutally as an ethnic minority immigrant workforce, basically in slavery for the host nation. And God says, you know what? That's your past. You've seen what I did. God had acted. God had liberated them. God had brought them out of that because of his grace and his love and compassion. God says that quite explicitly in Exodus chapter 2. He says, I have seen their suffering. I've heard their crying. I have compassion on them, and I'm coming down to rescue them. So God's grace had liberated, saved, redeemed. That's the language that's used in the book of Exodus, his people there. God had acted first. God's grace came first. Now, I wanted to stress this point right here at the sort of very beginning of the message because there's still, even among good evangelical Christian people, you'll often find something of a misconception about the, the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it goes something like this. You see, back in the Old Testament, you got saved by obeying God's law. Whereas in the New Testament, thank God, we don't have to bother with all that law stuff. We get saved by grace. Hallelujah. Now, the second of those, of course, is true. We are saved by grace. But it was equally true in the Old Testament. God saved the Israelites, brought them out of Egypt, and then said, now, let's talk about your response, how you're going to obey me. Even the very book of Exodus that we're in, the shape of the book tells you that. 
you get 18 chapters of salvation before you get a single chapter or reference even to the law. Grace and salvation come first. You have seen what I have done, says God. So you see, obedience in the Old or the New Testament is always a matter of response to God. Even the Ten Commandments make that point. When I was teaching in India, I would sometimes get to this, the book of Exodus, and I'd say, okay, who can tell me uh, how the Ten Commandments begin? And somebody will always say, you shall have no other gods before me. And I'd say, wrong. That's not the beginning of the Ten Commandments. It happens to be the first commandment. But the commandments begin with God saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And you know, in England, there's a lot of old English churches, a bit older than this one, 45 years old, more like sort of 450 years old, whatever it may be. But these are old, ancient Anglican churches. You will often find on the walls the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, and the Creed. And the Ten Commandments nearly always simply begin, you shall have no other gods before me. And I've been tempted sometimes to go and put a posted sticker up there and say, this is the law without the gospel. Because the Ten Commandments begin with the gospel, the truth of the saving, liberating God. I'm the God who redeemed you. Now then, don't have any other gods beside me. Obedience is always responsive to the grace of God. And that is true also in the New Testament. Because the New Testament has got commandments also, hasn't it? Jesus said, a new commandment I give you. Love one another. It's not an option. It's a command. But you remember Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. John puts it that way around. He said, we love because he first loved us. Or Paul who said, forgive one another. Again, it's not an option. It's a commandment of Paul, the apostle. But he says, forgive one another. How? As God in Christ has forgiven you. It's always grace first. And then comes response afterwards. All the grace of God. In other words, it's almost as if if we were to transpose this into the New Testament, as it were. It's as if God were to point to the cross and to say, you have seen what I have done. Now then, how are you going to respond to me? Or to put it bluntly, you can't live as you think a Christian ought to live unless you have first experienced the grace of God for yourself, as I trust you have. And that applies also, you see, to our mission. All that we are seeking to talk about here in a mission festival is responsive. You can't participate in God's mission except on the basis of the grace of God and what God has done for us and what God is doing around the world. It comes from the grace of God. Even that command of Jesus to go and make disciples doesn't start with that command. It starts with the fact that he is the risen Jesus who had died on the cross and said it is finished. And who now is the risen Jesus said all authority in the heaven and earth is given to me. So because of who Christ is, because what Christ has done then, he says now, go and make disciples of the nations. So that's the first point that I wanted to get across this evening as strongly as I can. That any mission that we do is never something that we are doing, as it were, for God to get God to do something else. It's because of what God has already done for us and is busy doing in the world that we then join in and participate out of gratitude and love and response to God's grace. So therefore, all our life as Christians, all that we do is somehow, as it were, slung between this reality of the past and God's grace and his salvation. 
But the story doesn't stay there, does it? Because, of course, it moves on to the future grace of God's mission. And you might say, just a minute, I can't see any mission uh, in Exodus chapter 19. Well, trust me, let's just get there for a moment. Come with me in your imagination and ask the question, what do you think the view was like from the top of Mount Sinai, which is where in the narrative God was? Now, I know, obviously, God is present everywhere, but in the way the story is told, God comes down to the top of the mountain. And where were the Israelites? Well, they were down in the valley at the foot of the mountain. And when you're at the bottom of a mountain, you can't see very much. And so the Israelites might well have been tempted to imagine that, well, you know, we're the only people here. We're obviously very special to God because he's redeemed us out of Egypt. uh, And so we must be the people that God loves and cares about and everything else. And God wants to say to them, it seems to me, from the top of the mountain, yes, you are very special. You are my people. I've brought you out of slavery. But don't think that you're the only people on the planet that I care about. Because from up here, as it were, where God is, I can see the whole earth, and it's all mine. And I can see all the nations of the earth, and that is the breadth of my vision. That's God, as it were, at the mountaintop, with this sense that it's not only the Israelites he's concerned about. It's all the nations and the whole earth. Those two phrases that are there in verse 5. See, what we've actually got here uh, in this passage is a wonderful combination, to use a little bit of technical language, of the universality and the particularity of God's work, okay? The breadth and the specific. Because yes, of course, at this point, God has rescued one nation out of bondage and slavery, but God's intention is that his liberating, redeeming work should be extended to all the nations, That's the particular and the universal. God says to the Israelites, yes, you are my treasured possession. But then in the same breath, he says, but the whole earth is mine. It all belongs to him. Similarly, God had just demonstrated his power in one land, the land of Egypt. In fact, he'd said to Pharaoh, I've raised you up to show that I am the God in Egypt, not you. But he had raised up Pharaoh and done that work in that one land, he says, in order that the whole ends of the earth will know who I am and know the name of the living God. So it's the whole earth and all the nations that God is concerned about. And you see, if we've been reading the story from the beginning and had read our way through Genesis and got to this point in Exodus, and here's God saying, all the nations, the whole earth, we should be saying, yeah, well, of course, Because who is this God who's talking here in this passage? This is the same God who at the same place on Mount Sinai a few months earlier when Moses had specifically asked him, who are you? Who shall I say you are? Had said, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And you'll remember this morning, if you were here, that we were thinking exactly of that, that it was to Abraham that God had promised that through him and his people, This people, now at Mount Sinai, through them, all nations in the whole earth will be blessed. So this is still the universal mission of God that is in this text. One scholar has said that God's business with Israel in the Old Testament scriptures is nothing more than the unfinished business of God with all nations 
who were there from the beginning, right back in Genesis 10 and so on. So that's God's big story in the midst of this very particular story. One way that I try to illustrate that and help people to sort of grasp what's going on is a very simple sort of illustration. I've got four children. They're all now grown up, two boys, two girls. But when the two lads were little boys and they were playing football, that is soccer in your language, um, I used to go along as a doting father and watch them playing football when they were about 8, 9, 10 or whatever it was for their school. And I took along my camera. Remember cameras? You know those little things? Um, where you actually looked through the lens. And I had a, a, an SLR with a telephoto. It was actually 200 with a doubler, so it was a pretty long-range telephoto. And so with one eye, I would look through that lens where I could see my son. He would fill the whole frame. But I used to keep my other eye open, which you don't, didn't used to do, but I'd have both eyes open. So with one eye, telephoto on my son, my firstborn son. There he is. I've got him in the focus. My other eye is open because I wanted to watch the rest of the match to see where the other players are, where the ball is, what's going on. Because my son is there because there's a game going on with all these other players in it. And in a sense, it's a bit like that when you're reading the Old Testament that, of course, most of the time, Israel is filling the frame. Because God says about Israel to Pharaoh, he said, Israel is my firstborn son. So let my son go, that he may worship me. But Israel is there in that story, filling the frame, because God has got a match going on involving all the nations on the planet for all the history of humanity. God has that wide-angle vision of what we would now, in our jargon, call the evangelization of the world. And that's God's vision. And so God is saying, that's what you are there for, people of Israel, as my special possession. It's because the whole earth and all nations belong to me. And that's the point that is being made here. That's what makes sense, you see, of what God is doing. That God is envisaging the whole universal future and putting this piece of the story into that big story of the whole Bible. And you know what? That's also what, it seems to me, gives significance to all our response to God. All that we do in our lives is always framed by that story, by the past of God's grace and God's salvation and what God did in the Exodus and what God did at Calvary and the future of what God is going to do to the very end of history as we were thinking this morning to when the people of all nations will be gathered before his throne and somewhere in between those two poles of the historical past of what God has already done and the ultimate future of what God is going to do somewhere in there are you and me and believers all through the ages And I find that that is one thing that the older I get helps to give significance to my personal life. I don't know about you, but somehow the older you get, the more you begin to wonder, what's it going to have been worth to be me all these years? You know, here we are, I don't know, 70-something, and who knows, might go on for another decade, who knows, but even if I live to 100, what's 100 years in the vast span of human history, let alone the vast cosmic eons of the universe? It's a drop in the ocean. It's nothing. But when you see that, yes, I have a story which is part of a story which began long before I was born and will continue long after I die until the Lord comes again, unless he comes in my lifetime, that gives my story a sense of purposefulness, a sense of significance. And particularly, I think, to younger people today in this generation, that sense of a longing for significance, for my life to mean something, is important. And that's what the gospel gives us. It actually gives us a place and a purpose and a meaning 
to human life. So we were asking at the very beginning, just before I move on, who are we? Well, we are the people whom God has already redeemed out of bondage. We know about God's past grace of salvation. And what are we here for? We are here because we are the people through whom God is working to bring blessing to all nations. And that's the very reason for our existence, the past and the future. But of course, that's not the whole story, because we then have to move on to what God says to these people about the present grace of God's people living in God's way and living in obedience to God. And that's where we come to verse 6, where God says to them, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, I'm not going to go into the whole condemnation of kings and priests and, because it's a very rich theme. It runs right through the whole Bible from Genesis right through to the book of Revelation. I just want to think about the word priestly and the word holy for a few minutes. The word priestly, of course, is one of the things that in the Protestant Reformation sort of times, we, we gave up on that a bit. We don't like priests too much. We have presbyters, don't we? So uh, we, we, we got away from that. But nevertheless, it's a very important biblical theme. And what does it mean for God to say to the Israelites, you will be my priestly people? Well, to understand that, we need to ask what was the job of the priests in the Old Testament. And here I want to say is that the priest was basically a middleman. The priests, or the priests in general, were those who stood in between God on the one hand and all the rest of the people on the other. That's their role. The older word was mediator. But it's basically middle, in the middle, in between. And in that place, they had a job that went in two directions. First of all, it was the job of the priests to be teaching God's law to the people. Now, we don't often think of it that because we take most of our understanding of the Old Testament from Hebrews. Uh, and so we don't remember that God said to the Israelites when Aaron was ordained in Leviticus chapter 10, uh, verse 11, you must teach the Israelites all the decrees that the Lord has given. They were to be teachers of God's law. And later on in Deuteronomy, it says about the tribe of Levi that he teaches your law to Israel. So you see, the job of the priests was to make God known to the people through his word, through the law that he had given to them. Through the priests, God would become known to the people. That's one reason why later on in Israel, uh, the prophets were so upset because, well, as Hosea precisely says, Hosea says there's no knowledge of God in the land. There's only idolatry and adultery and uh, bloodshed. He lists a whole lot of things. But then he says there in Hosea chapter 4, he says, and whose fault is it? Who is he going to accuse? And he says, my charge is against you, O priest, because the priests were not teaching the people. And so therefore the people had no knowledge of God and were going astray. So that's the first thing. Through the priests, God become known to the people. But then the other direction that we're more familiar with, of course, was it was the job of the priests to bring the sacrifices of the people to God. So if you were an Israelite in the Old Testament and you had committed some sin or some folly or perhaps some ritual uncleanness, which was not necessarily morally wrong, what would you do if you were no longer able to come into the fellowship of God's people at the temple and to worship God? Well, you would bring an animal, one of the sacrifices, whatever was prescribed, and you would slaughter the animal, and the blood would be taken and thrown against the altar, and the priest would say, your sins are atoned for. The priest will make atonement for your sin through the death of the sacrifice of the animal. 
So you could then come back to God, back into fellowship with the people of God. And if it was a fellowship offering, you'd go and have a barbecue uh, and the family would enjoy a great meal together of, of the meat because you would come back joyfully into the presence of God. So you see, therefore, the job of the priests in the Old Testament was to bring God to the people and to bring the people to God. That's what they were supposed to be doing. And so therefore, how significant is it that God says to the Israelites as a whole community, as the people of God, you will be for me to the rest of the nations of the world what your priests are for you. That is, you are going to be the people through whom I will make myself known to the rest of the world, as, of course, God has done through the Scriptures of Israel. We have our Bibles. God has made himself known through that people. And you will be the people through whom I will draw the nations to myself, which, of course, he has done through the Messiah of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ, who said, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all people to me. So you see, the priestliness of this people is God's way of bringing himself, making known to the nations, and bringing the nations to himself. And you get that double movement within the Old Testament already. The law of God will go out to the nations, they will come to know God, and the nations will come up to the mountain of God to meet with him in covenant blessing. This is exactly the way the New Testament also describes our role as God's priesthood. Now, the first place we discover that is actually from the Apostle Paul, because he described himself in that way in Romans chapter 15. Uh, I'm not sure if you've ever really noticed that this is the only place in the New Testament where any individual describes themselves in priestly language. And here it is, the Apostle Paul. He says, I wanted to tell you, remind you, Romans, about the ministry or the grace that God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, meaning, of course, the nations. He gave me, says Paul, God gave to me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles, the nations, might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. You see, Paul sees himself in priestly terms. Now, Paul could never have been a priest in Jerusalem in the temple because he was the wrong tribe. Priests had to be Levites. Paul was a Benjaminite. But Paul said, that's all right. I had a priestly job, and it was bringing the gospel of God to the nations so that I could bring the nations to God. And I wonder whether he had this verse in his mind, possibly even subliminally, simply aware that that's what priests do. They bring the knowledge of God to the world, to the people, and they bring the people to God. Paul says, that's what I was doing. And you might say, well, that's great. That's good. That's for the Apostle Paul. He was an apostle. He was a missionary. I'm just an ordinary Christian. Well, I'm afraid we don't get off quite so easily because the Apostle Peter, who knew a thing or two about the Apostle Paul, he says that this is exactly who we are if we're believers in Christ. Peter was writing, as he tells us, to the saints scattered abroad throughout that part of the world we now know as Turkey. And they would have been Gentiles as well as Jewish believers. And he says precisely in chapter 2, he says, you are that people. He says uh, in chapter 2, 
verse, verse 9, he says, You are that chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, quoting exactly from Exodus chapter 19, so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. See, you've had your Exodus experience, out of darkness, out of death, out of slavery, into light and life and freedom. And because you've had that experience, he says, now you must live in that way as those who are to bring God to the nations and bring the nations to God. So you see, if that's who we are, we are to be the living representatives of the living God. Our task as the people of God is to bring God to the world and to bring the world to God. And that's not not something that we can outsource, as it were, simply to those whom we pray for and commission and pay and support to go and do it in other places. They're not doing it for us. They're doing it with us. And we are doing it together with them. So you see, if somebody in London sees on the side of a bus, there probably is no God. They ought to be thinking to themselves, you know, that can't really be true. Because I know Sally and John, and they're Christians. And God is obviously real in their lives. We are supposed to be the living proof of the living God. That's the mission of God's people. That, in a sense, is our mission, is to be that God presence in the world which then draws people to him. We'll think even more about that a little bit tomorrow. But we're not quite finished because, of course, the question is, how can we possibly be such a people? And that's where we need the other word that, uh, that God brings here, which is that he says, not only are you going to be my priesthood, but you must therefore be a holy people. It's another one of those misunderstood words, isn't it? People think of holiness in a sort of, you know, stained glass window, upturned eyeballs sort of sense being holy, you know. No, no, no. The word holy in the Old Testament simply meant to be different, to be distinctive. God says to the Israelites back in Leviticus, very bluntly, he says, look, you must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live, with the idolatry of empire and power and weapons and horses and chariots and all that imperial kind of stuff. Don't worship their gods. Don't do like that. And you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I'm bringing you, where they worship Baal, who was the god of sex and money and land and business and all the other stuff that seemed to matter, health and wealth and everything else. God said, you don't want to be like that either. No, he says, you must be different. Don't follow their practices. You must follow my laws and my decrees because I am your God. So be holy because I am holy, he says, at the beginning of chapter 19. Wonderful chapter, Leviticus 19. When I get to the new creation, I'm going to ask Moses why he left it so long in the book of Leviticus to get to chapter 19, because didn't he know nobody ever reached there? You know, you get stuck around about chapter 3. But Leviticus 19 is an incredible chapter of practical, down-to-earth holiness. And it has to do with the way you behave in your family, in your social welfare for the poor and needy, the disability, uh, employment law, workers' rights, the laws of libel and health and safety, criminal justice system, neighborhoods, social and ethnic equality of all races before the law, weights and measures, honesty and business. It's all there in Leviticus 19. And it's not some kind of socialism. It's holiness, says God. That's the way I want you to live in that way, to be different. And so therefore, when... God says to the Israelites, I want you to be my holy people. How? 
says, well, if you will obey me. And of course, that means immediately in the Old Testament context, uh, as, uh, it means to obey the commandments, the law. Uh-uh. So, uh-oh, yeah, here we go. Works righteousness all over again. We're getting back into the law. Bad. No, 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 no. Don't forget the context. This is the context of grace. This is the obedience of response to the grace of God. God says, if you will obey me because you've seen what I've already done. In other words, it's not some sort of works righteousness. It is, in fact, God saying, look, it's precisely because I have saved you that you are to live in this way. God did not say to the Israelites, if you will obey me and keep my commandments, then I might save you and you might be able to be my people. Because he'd already saved them. They already were his people. And now he says, I want you to live in this way. So obedience is never a condition of salvation. But it is a condition of mission. It's only an obedient people. People who are walking in the ways of the Lord, as we were thinking this morning. People who are responding to God's grace in this double reality of obedience to grace because of God's mission. That we are able to serve him. In other words, as I put at the last here, this is the grace of obedience, responding to the grace of salvation for the sake of the grace of God's mission. That's what we have in these wonderful verses, this wonderful verse, Exodus 19, 3 to 6. So let me draw it all to a close then and summarize and conclude. I began by asking the question, who are we and what are we here for? Well, we, like the Israelites of the Old Testament, we are people who have experienced the saving grace of God. I trust you have, that you know what it is to have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to have come to the cross for salvation. You know about the past grace of his salvation. And like the Israelites of the Old Testament, we are those whom God is longing to use in his world for the sake of his desire to bring blessing to the nations. God's mission is our mission. We share in it for his sake, every one of us. And therefore, like the Israelites of the Old Testament, we are those who are called by God to live uh, in that mission by the present grace of obedience to God's word and God's law. In other words, we are exactly what Peter says in that chapter 2, that wonderful uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, where Peter says, look, you've had your exodus experience. God has called you out of darkness. He's made you his people. Now then, go and live by that story. Live that identity and be for God what God is calling you to be so that the people in the world around you will not believe these lies that there is no God and it doesn't matter because they will see the beauty and the holiness and the love and the grace of God in your life and come to worship him as God desires. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that your word speaks to us right across the centuries, in fact, across thousands of years from Mount Sinai, right into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. We thank you that you are the same God. You are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and our God today. So thank you for speaking to us. We pray that your Holy Spirit will enable us to go out into whatever this week holds for us in the coming days to live as your people in the grace of obedience to your word and your ways. For Jesus' sake, amen.